Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning to those of you who are with us online. We're glad you've chosen to go join us, and we're jealous of the fact you're still in your pajamas. Um, there's an old story that's floating around in my head. I mean, I'm 60. There's lots of old stories, but <clears throat> one in particular uh, about how you catch a monkey, and it, it's been around so long that I actually, when I thought about talking about it this morning, I went, I'm, gonna, I'm pretty sure this thing's urban legend, right? It, or maybe jungle legend or something, but it doesn't like seem like it would be true. But as I started research, I found out the story's told like uh, in Tolstoy's writings. It's uh, in a lot of self-help books for decades it's been there. It's even in the book uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which tells me it's true. Uh, so as far as I can discern, the story is true, and it goes like this. If you want to catch a monkey, what you need to do is get a gourd or a coconut and hollow it out. Then you drill this small hole in the top of the coconut. It's really important, the size of the hole, because you want it to be just big enough for a monkey to be able to fit its hand into the gourd. And so you drill the hole, you get it set, and then you put some kind of a bait in there. And the two best baits would be a really ripe banana or some sweet, sticky rice. You tie that gourd to a tree, and you just wait. And as it goes, over time, a monkey will find it. They're drawn to the sweet smell. They find it, and they plunge their hand in and seize the prize. And that's when they're trapped. They soon realize that they can't, that hand that went in when it wasn't clutching something, now clutching that sweet won't come out, and they refuse to let go of the treat And so they protest, and they scream, and they howl, and they struggle until the trapper comes to pick them up. The irony of it all, of course, is that at any point in this whole struggle, the monkey could have escaped, right? All he had to do was drop the banana and run. Now, it's pretty easy for us to look at this and see the fatal error in the monkey's choice. He's made a really poor trade-off. He's trading his freedom for a common, worthless prize. He's blinded by his attachment to that treat. We'd love to believe that we're smarter than a monkey, right? I mean, we should be able to avoid a trap like that. We should be able to understand the danger of holding on to things for far too long. We should. But unfortunately, we hold on for dear life to things that don't serve us well. We hold on to past mistakes, the need to be right. We hold on to anger and resentment. We hold on to material things that are of little value. We hold on to toxic relationships, toxic habits, toxic addictions. And we clutch it tightly, refusing to let it go, while all the while it casts a shadow over all we love, all we do, and all we believe. In spite of what we do believe, (laughs) we're really not much better than the monkeys. And if we want to have a better year, we need to learn how to drop the banana and run away. All right, so do you like that idea? Let go of the banana and run away, (laughs) right? It may be one of the goofiest and, and still profound things I've said on this stage. But if you don't remember anything else from this morning, that lesson will serve you well. So I want you to just to anchor it in your brain. I want you to say it with me at home, full energy on this, right? 
mean, your kids that are still asleep upstairs need to hear you yell this, right? So let's say it with full energy. Drop the banana and run away. That was really pathetic, right? Let's try it again. Drop the banana. Awesome. Now, to help us understand and apply that concept, I want us to look at a passage out of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. And you can follow along on the screen or you can follow along in the notes section of the Westridge app. And I need a caveat before I dig into the passage because sometimes, I don't know if you feel this, but when I read a passage in the Bible, sometimes it feels a little awkward to hear the words from 2,000 years ago in our current cultural context. I think this passage is one of those. It has a cringe factor to it because for his primary illustration to make his point, Paul uses slavery. So let's talk about that before we dive in. I don't want anybody to get hung up on that and miss the point he's trying to make. As we interpret and apply Paul's message to our lives, it's important that we always understand the cultural context of the people in the city of Rome to whom this letter was written. The Roman Empire was well known for slavery. The most familiar type was what we know all too well. It involved capturing an enemy or capturing someone from a foreign land, destroying everything that might tempt them to return home, and then hauling them to Rome to be sold on the auction block like a piece of property. Now, by Paul's day, most of the empire, and especially the city of Rome, was doing away with that particular type of slavery. In fact, In Paul's lifetime, hundreds of thousands of slaves in the city of Rome had been given citizenship as a Roman and had been released to pursue a life of freedom. But there still remained one older type of slavery that was called voluntary indenture. It was still common in Rome, and Paul uses that as an example here. Voluntary indenture was often used by people who were impoverished so that they could serve someone and thereby gain food and lodging. They accepted slavery willingly in order to meet their basic needs. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul's not condoning slavery. He's using the illustration. It was still slavery. It was still wrong. But the life of those slaves was less like what we know from early American history. And it was more like, best example I could have is the, the, the staff in Downton Abbey, right? If you watch that. They were voluntary household servants who received food and lodging in return for their service. Got it? You with me? Because it shows up right away in Romans 6. Paul says this, Doesn't it make sense that if you sign yourself over as a slave, there it is, voluntary indenture. If you sign up, sign yourself over to be a slave, you will have to obey your master. The question before you is this, What will be your master? Isn't that great? Such a powerful question Paul asks. What owns you? What controls you in your life? Will it be sin, Paul asks, which leads to certain death, or obedience, which will lead to a right and reconciled life? Thank God that your slavery to sin has ended, and that in your new freedom, you pledged your heartfelt obedience to that teaching which was passed on to you. The beauty of your new situation is this. Now you are free from sin. You are free to serve a different master, God's redeeming justice. Isn't that beautiful? 
Paul packs a lot of truth into those three short verses with such profound questions. And the primary one is, will you voluntarily surrender yourself to sin? Will you let it own you? Will you let it control you? Now, to make sure we're on the same page this morning, just a quick definition of what sin is. And it falls into two broad categories. We sin when we don't do, I'm sorry, when we do what we know we shouldn't. And we sin when we don't do the good we know we should do. In a very practical definition, you want something simpler to wrap your head around? Sin is anything that hurts you. Anything that hurts the you's you work with or live with or love. Sin is anything that hurts people you don't even know. By its very nature, Paul says, sin is destructive. But if we're honest, we know sin can also be fun, right? I mean, you probably didn't expect to hear that in church this morning, but sin can be fun. If you look at the book of Exodus, it describes Moses this way. The Bible teaches Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy what? The fleeting pleasure of sin. We get lured in by the fleeting pleasure. Nobody will get hurt. It's just this one time. It's just one more time. Paul says, what's going to be your master? What is it that you will give yourself to? Will it be sin, which leads to certain death? Now, he's not necessarily talking about physical death, though there are some sins that can lead to that. But sin kills. Sin kills relationships and careers. Sin kills our physical and financial health. Health. Sin kills our confidence and our peace. You know it's true. And you can see death creeping in on your life when you look at yourself in the mirror, if you've given yourself over to a sin. So what do you want to own you? What will control you? Thankfully, there's another option. Paul says, yes, you can be controlled and driven by sin that leads to death, but you can also choose obedience which will lead to a right and reconciled life. Look, we know. We've all been there. Obedience can be really hard. Because being obedient to Jesus compels us to do what's right, especially when it's hard. But I promise you that following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. Don't you love that? I heard that phrase this week, and it's just going to stick with me for a long, long time. It describes the point that Paul is making here beautifully. In the final analysis, obedience does not enslave us. It frees us from the consequences and the complications of our sin. It makes our life better, and it makes us better at life. Paul has a few more words to say about this. He goes on in verse 19 and says, I want to be perfectly clear, as if he hasn't been already, I want to be perfectly clear, in the same way you gave your bodily members away as slaves to corrupt and lawless living and found yourselves deeper in your unruly lives, now devote your members as slaves to right and reconciled lives so that you'll find yourselves deeper in holy living. 
And then Paul gets really personal with each of us. He says, in the days when you lived as a slave to sin, you had no obligation to do the right thing. In that regard, you were free. But what do you have to show from your former lives besides shame? The outcome of that life is death, guaranteed. But now that you've been emancipated from the death grip of sin and are God's slave, you have a different sort of life, a growing holiness. And the outcome of that life is eternal life, a growing holiness. Isn't that beautiful? Holiness is simply us becoming more and more like Jesus every day. It's a process made in every decision, every challenge, every opportunity. And the outcome of that life, Paul says, as we grow in holiness, is one day we'll have eternal life. It all hinges on Paul's question at the very beginning when he says, the question before you is this, who will be your master? What will be your master? So as you sit here this morning, my guess is you know the answer. We all know the answer. Right in this moment, you know if you've been giving your life and your energies to something else other than Jesus. You may have this sick feeling in your stomach as I talk about it because you know there's this one thing that has mastered you. It consumes your thoughts. It drives your behaviors, your actions. And it may have started off innocently, but now you feel trapped. You feel driven. You feel mastered by it. We're going to have a better year this year. It doesn't depend on what happens around us in this world. It's going to require something different of us, something on the inside. We have to figure out what it is we're holding on to that's holding us back so that we can do what's right, even when it's hard. So let me just ask you this morning, what are you holding on to? Maybe it's something that happened in your past. You were wronged, you were hurt, and you're still holding on to the pain and the anger and the bitterness from your past. Maybe it's a relationship in your life that's just gotten toxic. A romantic relationship, a friend, a group of friends, a coworker, a family member, a relationship that should have ended a long time ago because trust and respect and care are gone from that relationship. And it's just become exhausting to try. And you've held on to the hope of salvaging that relationship so long that now it owns you and it's negatively impacting all your other relationships. Maybe it's an addiction that you've held on to for far too long. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography. Sometimes it's really not obvious. It's just not. It's hard for us to see what we're holding on to because on the surface, what we're holding on to can look good or bad as we look at it. But we know when we look at it that its impact on us is unhealthy. And so we start to wonder, in light of my past experiences, in light of my current circumstances, in light of all my future hopes and dreams, is this the thing 
that I need to let go. And honestly, it may be something that's just you let go of for now, but not for forever. It may be a good thing for you in a different season of life, but right now it's taking you down the wrong path. You know, I was blindsided. I mean, I love to think it was the Holy Spirit that did it to me when I was writing this because it made me think about a job that I held for six years. And I loved it. I really did enjoy my job, but I loved it so much that I was really unaware that it was controlling me 24-7. Couldn't see it. I was dominated by my work. Nearly every conversation, every waking moment, I was obsessing on it. I was on call for my work 24-7. I was called... uh, I was on call during work time. I was on call during downtime. My vacations seldom passed without an interruption uh, from my job. And it was seldom urgent. And as I look back, it was hardly ever even important. Ultimately, this started to impact my health. I was down to sleeping two to three hours a night for months. And I couldn't see the control that this job had on my life, the control I was giving it, until I lost it. And I'd been away from it for a few months. And if I'm brutally honest, I didn't see how toxic it was in my life until my adult children talked about how I had changed since I left that job. It was obvious to them the impact it was having on my relationship with them, with my grandkids, with my wife with my God. And in the process, I was becoming less and less like Jesus. It was a hard truth to hear. It was a hard truth to accept. But it led to some drastic changes in my life and how I order my world. My open prayer is that no one who's listening to this, not a one of us will invest another year in a job or a relationship or an activity or a habit or an addiction that's controlling us and killing the stuff in our lives that really matters. So I want to ask you, take a hard look in the mirror. Be honest with yourself. Paul paints the reality really clearly in this passage. He says you're going to give your life to something. And you only have two choices. We can choose to invest our life and our energy and our resources into sin, into decisions and actions that hurt us and hurt the people we live with and love and work with and even hurts people we don't even know. Or we can choose to invest our lives in obedience to and following Jesus. It's painfully clear in this passage. We are free to choose between sin and obedience. We can't choose both. And we have to choose one. God's given us the freedom. But we have to choose. So this week, I want you to grab an unhurried chunk of time. I want you to grab a cup of coffee. I want you to grab a glass of wine, not both, just one or the other. And I want you to take an honest look at the evidence from your life 
Ask yourself, is the stuff I'm pouring my life into making me more like Jesus? If you find yourself struggling to give an honest answer to that, ask somebody you trust. Ask somebody who knows you well. And listen closely. Do your best to not react or be defensive. In either case, whether you're doing it alone or with someone, it's really helpful to just pray this simple prayer. David's prayer from Psalm 139. God, search me. Know my heart. Test me and find my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way with me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If you're brave enough to pray that prayer, don't be surprised when God answers. It shows you. And when he does, be smarter than the monkey. Stop holding on. Just drop the banana and run. Because by holding on, you're holding off the people who love you most. By holding on, you're holding off the God of the universe who loves you more than you'll ever fully understand. And whatever it is that you've been holding on to, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your future self. You owe it to your Father God to simply let it go.